Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. I believe some 77 questions are coming up. Verse 4, look at this. Job 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Isn't it interesting that when Job is suffering and very emotionally hurt and struggling, even spiritually, God does not say, Oh, Job, I'm sorry. I feel bad for you too. I just wish things were better, but they're not. I'm sorry. He doesn't. He rebukes him. Job, what are you doing feeling sorry for yourself? You're not in charge. I am. I have a purpose and plan for everything. It's really incredible that God takes this approach, but this is exactly what Job needs, and this is what you and I need. Tell me if you have understanding. Verse 5, who determined his measurements? Surely you know. I mean, that's kind of sarcastic. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened, Job? Or who laid its cornerstone when, listen to verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So we are introduced to the heavenly host. It appears God created all the angelic beings, these male ministering spirits who can take a body form but don't necessarily have a body form like we would think. They don't have maybe a permanent one. The Bible calls them in Psalm 104 ministering spirits. Ministering spirits who are ministers with flames of fire. That's how they're described. And God has a whole heavenly host of them there before he creates the world. Can you picture this? They all know who God is. He's their creator. And then they watch as Jesus Christ says, let there be light, and there was light. Let the dry land appear. And they're watching. They're like, dry land. We get it now. Let vegetation spring forth on the dry land. And they're watching as trees spring up and gardens and varieties of flowers and grasses. And then they watch as the, the universe is built and the stars are made. And, and they're like, wow, our God is awesome. Do they know who Jesus Christ is? Absolutely. He's speaking everything into existence. They're somehow intimately related and watching God create, and then he, they, they watch as God, as Jesus comes down and creates Adam out of the dust of the ground. What is he doing now? This creature can relate to him with personhood. They have intellect, emotion, and will. They have a relationship with the creator. That is amazing. And then they watch the rebellion of Satan and the fall of Satan and the third of the devils or the third of the angels following the devil I've already talked about that recently and then in the garden of Eden they're watching as Adam takes the fruit from his wife and eats it and they're like they're destroying what God created they're rebelling against the master the creator see the, 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 don't you agree the heavenly host has seen all of this and they heard it all Then they hear in the garden that God is going to send the seed of a woman to crush the devil and to win a victory over sin, death, and everything. I I bet they were like, wow, we're just going to watch this unfold. You agree? Pretty amazing. Very amazing. Do you want to know when the angels show up next? Take your Bibles, go to Deuteronomy 33. I don't know if you would realize or remember this, but you don't see this in a Sunday school story. Deuteronomy 33. I'm going to have to give you the condensed version. In my studies, uh, this could be just a whole message itself. Deuteronomy 33. I'll give you the condensed version. Years have passed. They have seen rebel, they've seen the flood of Noah, they've seen the you know, Tower of Babel, they've seen the division of the countries, they've seen all of that. 
And now the Lord says, get this, the Lord says, all right, everybody, all you heavenly hosts, you're coming with, that are holy, the two-thirds that are holy, you're coming with me. And I bet the heavenly host is like, oh, where are we going, Lord? We are going down to planet Earth. We're going to land on Mount Sinai, and I'm going to give the law to Moses and the Israelites, and then I'm going to tell them to build a tabernacle. Get this, and I'm going to live in the tabernacle in a cloud of glory. Lord, you are going to live on planet Earth in a tent? Yes, and I want you there to be a part of it. The angelic realm. Did you know when Moses received the Ten Commandments, you might have seen the movie, he wasn't alone? There were ten thousands times ten thousands times ten thousands of heavenly hosts accompanying God as God comes to earth to live on earth in a tent. See, God has a purpose for doing all of this, and you're going to see it in a minute. Why? Look at this. Deuteronomy 33 This is verse 1. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai, Mount Sinai, down in Egypt, and dawned on them from Seir. It's kind of like a sun term. You You guys understand what the dawn is? The rising of the sun. The sun pierces the darkness and just floods the whole landscape with light. I love the dawn. I don't like the night. I'm not afraid of the dark, but I don't like it. I love mornings. I love sunrise. Um, the, he, the Lord dawns on them from Seir, and shone, he shone forth. That sounds like brightness to me. He shone forth all of his glory, it says. With his glory, he shone forth from Mount Paran. Mount Paran is in the vicinity. So we're talking not just Mount Sinai, but a range of mountains around Mount, Mount Sinai. It says this, He came with ten thousands of saints, From his right hand, he came a fiery law for them. So when the Lord came to give the Ten Commandments and give instruction to build the tabernacle, he doesn't come alone. He brings 10,000 saints, like a huge multitude of the heavenly hosts. I bet Moses was like, wow, I mean, here's the Lord that I'm talking to face to face, but then 10,000 of his ministering angels surrounding Mount Sinai. Now, I'm not going to have time to take you there, but read it on your own. Can you remember Acts 7? In Acts 7, Stephen is preaching, and he says, You guys rejected Moses and the law which was given to you by the direction of angels. The angels were involved in giving the Ten Commandments and the, and the, and the pattern of the tabernacle. Because God involves his messengers, the, he delegates authority, he involves the angels all the time, and he involves them in the, in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Take your Bibles, go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. I do want you to see this text. Look at me with Hebrews chapter 2. What a warning for the church today. Hebrews chapter 2 in the New Testament. You know me, I don't like to just pull a single verse out of context and just say I can, I can claim it for something. So I was really, you know, in order to understand chapter 2, 1 through 4, you know what you really, you know, by the way, if you want to understand 1 through 9 of Hebrews 2, what do you really have to understand? Chapter 1, right? All right. I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis of chapter 1. It is so awesome. All right. If you want to study Hebrews 1 this week, just on your own, you are going to find absolute delight every single day of the week. You could actually take just a couple verses each day and just use that for your devotions. Seriously. 
I'm going to give you the bare bones of it. God spoke in various times and in various ways in the past. Sometimes he spoke through a donkey. Sometimes he spoke through dreams. Sometimes he gave them a vision. Sometimes the angel of the Lord showed up with a staff and he's touching things and they're exploding into flames. I mean, God spoke many times in different ways in times past. But today and now he has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ, who came in body form, Jesus, God in human flesh. And God now speaks to us personally through Jesus Christ, the Savior. And Jesus Christ not only came down to earth in human flesh, but he, after he purged our sins, he sat on the throne at the right hand of the Father with all authority. And then the writer to the Hebrews says, and by the way, Jesus is greater than the angels. What a strange comment that, G- that the writer would just simply say, you know what? Jesus as God in human flesh is greater than you know why You know why this has to be dealt with? Because the order of the Bible in Psalm 8 is God, angels, mankind is lower than angels right now, temporarily. So when Jesus became a man, where does it look like he is? Below the angels. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, hey, don't think little of Jesus because he became a man. Things are going to get reversed around and man is going to be greater than angels. Do you know that's true? Do you guys know that right now angels are way more powerful, way better than mankind? They are much greater than mankind. But there is coming a day when God is switching everything around, and that's Hebrews 1 and 2. He's going to put mankind above the heavenly host, that saying at Christmas. You and I are going to be judging and ruling over angels. What is that going to look like? They're going to be like, hey, Tom Johnson. I remember you on earth, delivering mail, going to church, serving the Lord, and now, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I'm, your, I'm serving you. You're going to be ruling over and judging the angelic realm. Wow. Like, one, one angel right now is like a hundred times more powerful than you and I, as a whole, you know? Incredible. So here's what the writer does. Hey, I want to prove to you Jesus is better than the angels. So from the rest of chapter 1, he says this. To what angel did, did God ever say, you're my son? No angel is God's son. Only God's son, Jesus, is God. And then he goes on and he says, um, which angel did I ever say you will be a future king forever on a throne? No angel. Then he goes on and he says, you know what happens? All the angels will worship Jesus at his second coming. Jesus is that great. Then he goes on and he says, at the end of the millennial kingdom, when everything uh, is torn apart and burned up, the angels will simply be ministers of God. That's it. They're just going to, they're, they're not in a great leadership capacity. They're, they're still servants of God. Then he talks about the end of the kingdom, that no angel is going to sit on the throne and rule over people um, or over all things. That's, up to, that's Jesus as a man and for mankind as his creation. Wow, that's, that's incredible. You guys, do you realize you have a lofty role in the future? Right now at Faith Baptist, you are being trained in the word of God and in prayer. Why? Not just so you can get through tomorrow, not so you can just get through Christmas and enjoy a Christmas holiday with stockings and presents. You are being trained for future leadership over the angelic realm by God. That's pretty lofty. That's pretty awesome. So look at Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Because we, because we are someday going to be greater than angels, we better take heed to what we're learning in the Bible. For verse 2 says this, For if the word spoken through angels, that's the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, 
Do you guys agree? Here it says, verse 2, if the, if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Is that true? When they, you guys, I don't know if you're with me. Pretend these are the Ten Commandments. Here are the Ten Commandments. The angels, God says, okay, angels, deliver these to Moses. And God writes them on a, on, with his hand, of course. But the angels somehow are involved in that. Do you guys agree that when you broke one of the Ten Commandments, there was a just, a just consequence immediately? I mean, you suffered under the law of Moses. True? God says the soul that sins, you deserve to die. You, a young adult, you want to rebel against your parents, will stone you outside the city today. I mean, you want to disobey God? There's an, Okay, you want to pick up sticks on the Sabbath? You're dead. You're dead. No exceptions. God says, what sacrifice is there for a willful sin? None. We kill you. If you commit a sin willfully, you can't offer a sacrifice. You're dead. We'll kill you. If you did it accidentally, you didn't mean to, you sinned, then you can offer a sacrifice, but otherwise you can't. There is no sacrifice for a deliberate sin. How many of us would be alive today if there was no sacrifice for a deliberate, willful sin? We'd all be dead. The, the whole church would be empty. So do you guys agree that the, the word of angels is pretty powerful and steadfast? So that's how Hebrews 2 ties the angels in at Mount Sinai. Can I tell you something? The writer to Hebrews says this, if the angel's word is that steadfast, how much better is Jesus' word? You guys, what would you answer? Way better. Do you agree? If the angel's words are that important to not neglect, how dare we neglect Jesus' words? That's the idea. Did you guys know that all those angels were there when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments? Have you ever seen that in a play? No, but it's true. Stephen says it. Paul says it. The writer to the Hebrews says it. They all say it. You know where Paul says it? Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. God gave the law through the ministry of angels. Okay. Take your Bibles. Go to Joshua chapter 5. Can I show you something else about the heavenly host? Go back with me now to the Old Testament. I know I'm flipping around. But I think you see that we've taken, we see the heavenly host at creation. We see the heavenly host at Mount Sinai and how important their word was not to be neglected, and, but Jesus' word is greater. Now take a look at Joshua 5 with me. Verse 13. Moses is dead. It's like losing a really powerful, great president. And then now the young guy, Joshua, has to step in and fill Moses' shoes. Not easy. They made it across the river, Jordan, and they're facing the first city to conquer, Jericho. It's like you're going after the biggest, strongest city in the promised land, and Jericho, uh, Joshua's got to be like, uh, what are we going to do? We can't use purple slushies. That's veggie tails. Um, what are we going to do to, I don't know, you know, I just remember seeing that years and years ago. Joshua must be thinking, okay, we're in trouble. We are now in enemy territory. God tells us to conquer it. And Jericho is a mighty city. All right, pretty, pretty intense, isn't it? Look at what happens in Joshua 5, verse 13. And it came to pass... When Joshua was by Jericho, they were camping out in Gilgal, about um, 13 miles away. So every, remember every day they had to march around the city? They had to get up, 
get out of their tents, get breakfast, hike 13 miles in the desert, walk around the city, hike back 13 miles, call it a day. The next day, get up, hike 13 miles, walk around the city, hike 13 miles back, call it a day. Okay, no wonder why by the day six they're like, okay, Joshua, if you make us do this one more time, we are going to kill you. You know, they were not like, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot of faith to trust God's word every single day. But here's what happened in verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, he's looking at the city, wondering how they can conquer it, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Standing on the ground, a man maybe his same height, but with a sword drawn. What would you do? I'd be like, I hope he's my friend. Well, that's what Joshua says. Look at this. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Are, are you for our adversaries? Are you a Jericho person? Or are you one of us? I mean, what a great question. He's scared. Verse 14. So he said, No, but listen to this. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So whoever is standing before Joshua is the commander-in-chief of the heavenly armies. Notice, it's an army. So the heavenly host are described in the Bible as an army. And isn't it true there's a spiritual battle going on? And if you have a spiritual battle, what do you need? Armies. God has an army of the heavenly host with swords, and the angel of the Lord is the commander-in-chief. And he identifies himself that way. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And notice, the angel of the Lord does not say, don't worship me. He doesn't stop Joshua from worshiping. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So now does Joshua know who the commander-in-chief is with the sword? Yes, it is God himself. Look at verse 15. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your feet for the place where you stand is holy. Why is it holy? Because the commander-in-chief is God himself. So Joshua did so. Okay, now... Take your Bibles. Go back with me to the Christmas story, Luke 2. I want to give you, I think, the right perspective of the angels and then their message. Just with that little bit. We're going to have one more little scene of the angels, but that'll come at the end. Luke chapter 2. Don't read a, Christ, don't read a Christmas carol into this, and don't read any preconceived notions. Let's just read the text and see what it says. Verse 8, Luke 2, verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord, but this is not God, this is just an angel, not capital A, this is just an angel of the Lord, stood before them. Wait a minute, where, did, where was the angel of the Lord? It's, first of all, we know it's a man, probably without wings, because only certain ones had wings, and standing before him before the shepherds. So the angel is not floating in air with a harp and wings singing sweet melodies. It is probably a general in the army standing on the same level as the shepherds, but with glory shining around him. By the way, when, and I'm going to talk about this with the wise men, when the glory shone around him, I bet it turned the nighttime like noontime. I bet it was that bright of a light as he was reflecting the light of a holy God. And he probably no doubt has a sword in his hand. And he's standing before the shepherds on their level. Can you picture him standing? Okay, let's keep reading. They, no wonder why they're greatly afraid. This guy is uh, an angelic being, a 
man, a a male figure who's an angel, who is probably high up in the army of God. He goes on and it says this, The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. Now the word Lord means, curious, it means the master, the absolute highest authority. Right? So the angel says, the one who is born is the Lord, the, the anointed one, but it's the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. So if the heavenly host is with the angel and the angel is standing on the ground before the, men, before the shepherds, where is the heavenly host? Standing with the one. I think standing on ground. But the word host, it's the Greek word stratia. Stratia is a Greek word for army, a military force. Not an angelic choir, not with their robes going, singing nice hymns of praise. They are warriors, angelic warriors with swords and bright shining light. But how many? Maybe 10,000s times 10,000s times 10,000s. Filling every hill of Bethlehem. So with the one appears now, instantly, visible before their eyes. Now, I had some pictures. I didn't put them up. I had pictures of a million people in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Mall. There's a picture of a million people. It is phenomenal. Like, everywhere you look in the picture, there is a person. Imagine those all with swords drawn and glowing with the light of God. That would be pretty impressive. So don't think, of an, don't think of an angelic choir singing sweet songs with angelic wings floating over the air. Think of a military force that is God's army. And who is the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths? According to Joshua 5, their commander-in-chief. Were they there when Jesus spoke the world into existence? Yes, they have not aged. They're still angels. They remember the day when Jesus spoke everything to existence. They remember the day when Adam and Eve fell. They remember the day when God promised a Messiah, a son of a seed of the woman. They remember all of this. And now they're like, wait a minute. Our commander-in-chief, the leader of our army, is now a helpless babe. And why are they there? I think they're there to protect the babe. I think they're there to guard their commander-in-chief. Why not? Because if Satan can kill Jesus, he wins as a little babe in a manger. Take, hold your place there. We'll come back to that. Go to Revelation 12. Look with me at Revelation 12, and you'll see another side of Christmas. Here's why I really believe there's a, a protection of the commander-in-chief at Christmas. Revelation 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, that would be Israel, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars, the twelve twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 2, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So this nation Israel is going to give birth to a very important son, a boy. 
We'll find that out here. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon. Who's that? The devil, right? Satan. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. It sounds like that, that would easily overpower a woman with child. It just seems like that to me. But look at verse 4. His tail, the devil, drew a third of the stars of heaven. That would be a third of the angelic hosts. And threw them to the earth. That's the battle that is being waged spiritually and physically with the angelic realms. And the dragon stood, listen to this, the dragon stood before the woman, that's Israel, who was ready to give birth, that's Jesus, to devour her child as soon as it was born. So as soon as the baby comes out of the womb and wrapped in swaddling cloths, I bet the devil, because wasn't the devil in Nazareth or at least the demons listening to Gabriel say to Mary, you are going to have the king who will sit on the throne forever. They go back, Satan, Satan, you would not believe. Gabriel just showed him Nazareth and told Mary, Mary is going to be the woman who gives birth to the Messiah who will crush you. What do we do? And Satan's like, crush her, kill her. We can't. She's being protected by God. All right, when the baby's born, kill the baby. Can you hear what's going on? So he is trying to devour the child as he, the child is being born. And so no wonder why God says, I want a multitude of the heavenly host down there. Don't let Satan get close. We're protecting this baby. Awesome, isn't it? I think it's just a huge sign of the spiritual battle that is waging and, and going on with warfare. But they're not just guarding and protecting the baby. They're proclaiming something. Go back to Luke 2. Verse 13, Luke 2, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, our angelic army. They were there at Mount Sinai. Oh, by the way, I didn't even continue that thought. When they came to Mount Sinai, they came and God stayed. Right? They came down at the Ten Commandments, and then God stayed in the tabernacle, and they went back to heaven. Here, they come down, and Jesus stays on earth, and they go back to heaven. Kind of neat, isn't it? Interesting, these parallels. Let's keep going. Here's what they said in verse 14. They were praising God and saying. It doesn't say that they were singing. As a matter of fact, it says they were speaking. It's the word for speaking. I think the multitude of the heavenly hosts, they were chanting. They were like, like, a, like a battle chant. Here's what they were saying. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. All right. That was their message. So let's look at verse 14. Glory to God. That is our purpose. You were created to glorify God. Now the word glory in the Greek is doxa. It means a bright shining light. It's like the summation of all of God's attributes. And we are to glorify God, who is in the highest of positions. Even though he's a humble babe, he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. In the Hebrew is kavod. Hebrew, uh, the word Glory is kavod, which means heaviness, weight. If something was heavy on a scale, it was of great value. That was the idea. So it's, and you've heard me say this before. If I throw a small pebble in a lake, it makes small ripples. If I throw a big rock in a lake, it makes big waves. God is heavy. He's big. And he makes big waves and influences everything. So how do I glorify God? Here's how, okay, I cannot add to God's attributes and I cannot add to his greatness. You, you guys agree? No matter what I do, I cannot add to his greatness. But what I can do is I can reflect his greatness pro- either properly to the world or improperly. I can diminish his glory, 
by making him look bad in front of other people. Like my wife. I could go around and trash my wife and speak ill of her to the community, and I'm making people think less of her than greater of her. But when I talk to people about what my wife does, her selflessness, her service, her devotion to Christ, um, you know, those are all things that make her look good. All right, that's just the way it is. So when I live my life out in the world, I'm either making Christ look like he should in all of his greatness, or I'm making people think less of Jesus because of my words, my attitude, what I do. Or, you know, People would say, oh, he's a pastor. If he's a pastor, I want nothing to do with that Jesus. You know, I, I know this. I have, heard, I have heard of people's reputations, and I think, oh, no. They are making my Savior look bad. You know these um, professional evangelists, and then they fall into disgrace? What does the unsaved world say of that? Who wants Christianity? Who wants Jesus? He's some made-up God that they're following, and I want nothing to do with that. Because they're not making Jesus look as great as he ought to look. So we ought to make God look great through our lives. Because he is great. And we don't want to do anything or say anything that would cause anybody to think less of our Savior. Right? That's how we glorify God in the highest. So that, these, angelic, this, this, these angelic soldiers, they were saying, mankind, you need to give glory to God. You need to make him look as great as he really is. You have no concept of how great he is. Your lives better line up so they look like his. That's basically what they were saying. Glory to God who dwells and sits in the highest of heavens, and on earth, what's going to happen? Peace among men. There's a battle raging, and mankind's mixed up in it, but through this baby, because his death on the cross and resurrection is going to finally make peace between God and man. Man who has rebelled against God and is an enemy of God is now going to be found in a peaceful relationship. But not every man. Which men are going to have peace with God? The Bible says, peace among men, in whom he is well pleased. The ones, that's literally the way it says in the Greek, in whom he is well pleased. The ones that have peace with God are those whom God is pleased with. Is God pleased with rebellion? No. So if you're unsaved, he is not pleased with you and you do not have peace with God. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, by the way, that's one of Paul's favorite phrases. When, the moment you believe in Jesus, you are in Christ. Protected, you are in Christ. When God sees us, he sees us as righteous and as perfect as Christ is because we are in Christ. Is God pleased with Christ? Yes. So then if he's pleased with Christ and you are in Christ, he is pleased with you. Basically, the angels were saying there's only one way to have peace with God. It is to place your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Then God is pleased with you because you trusted his son and you now have eternal life. That's the message. It's the message of the gospel. And the, the shepherds knew it. They were like, yes, our lives ought to reflect the highest God, Jesus Christ, and it's only through him that we can have peace with God, ultimately then peace with one another, but peace with God because God is pleased with us, not because of our good works. Our good works are an offense to him. He is only pleased with us because we finally have we placed our faith in the right object, Jesus Christ. Now, after the angels have said that, and the babe is safe, just to visually give a perspective, then the angelic realm disappears and goes to heaven. They're still around. They're still waging battle, even in our own heavenlies. Daniel chapter 10 says that there was a battle between 
the prince of Persia, one of Satan's high-ranking demons, and the, another angel that God had sent on a mission. And they were battling in the, where the planes fly and everything. Can you imagine you're on a 747 and the an angel, invisible battles going on up there, and they have to duck out of the way because a big jumbo jet's coming through? And they're probably like, whoa, there goes a whole group of people going to Tanzania or whatever. You know, um, this stuff's raging in our realms. It's not just up in the third heavens. It's happening right around us. Daniel 10 says that. All right. So does that give you a little different perspective of the Christmas story? All right. Last thing, because I know we're going to end here in just a minute. The last time we see the heavenly... Okay, the first time we see the heavenly host is at creation. The second time is when God comes to dwell on earth. Then they disappear. The third time, that's Mount Sinai. Then the third time is in the shepherd's field. God comes to earth. They disappear. The fourth time is when Jesus comes the second time. Daniel 7 says there are ministering around the throne 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000. The book of Revelation calls it a myriad. So you're talking hundreds of millions of holy angels. Revelation 19 says these holy angels with us, Matthew 24 as well, will come back from heaven for the final battles on earth when Christ sets up his kingdom. Again, when Jesus comes back to earth, he's, he's, just, he's always followed by angels. They're like his attendants. Because he's the commander-in-chief and the army goes with the chief. Make sense? So when you're thinking of the Christmas story, just realize there is a big battle being waged over your soul, over your family. Satan wants to kill your family, destroy your family, tear you apart. You've got to resist him. You've got to resist him. Do not give in to the devil. Resist him and he will flee from you. That is it. Too many believers give in. They give in. They give up. Do not give in. It is a battle. Your life is being lived out on a battlefield, not a playground. Don't forget that. This is not the time for picnics and playgrounds. This is battle time. You better have your armor on. You are in the midst of it, whether you like it or not. And it was right there at the Christmas story. A great battle, and so God calls his heavenly host and says, all right, show up, and I want you to be visible this time. (laughs) Show the shepherds who's really protecting the babe. Awesome. Now, that's not quite the story we get at Christmas, is it? Kind of different than the choir in robes. I don't see swords in manger scenes. I don't know, maybe all of our manger scenes, we need to tape little swords on the angels. You know, that type of thing. I don't know. It just would be more realistic. Oh, and don't have them hovering. Get them on the ground, circling the babe. You know, in a big circle around the babe, or around the shepherd's field, I would say. Okay, well, hopefully that gives you some understanding of the, she- of the angels. Maybe today you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Trust him. Don't trust your good works or religious duties or religious rituals. Trust Jesus alone. He's the only one that has died for you and risen from the dead. But I would say if you're a believer... Don't be apathetic. How dare you be apathetic? If you're apathetic in battle, don't stand by me. Because a fiery dart's coming and you're not going to be there to help me. So if you're, not, if you're apathetic, get it, do something about that. You know, I pray that these things will shake us up and, and then um, we're going to live radically for Christ. Look at what this little church is doing. All right, okay, I'll tell you this. I thought about this both last night and the night before. I think the devil and his demons were raging wild mad over what was happening here. I bet they were saying, wow, they're getting the Christmas story right. They're getting the gospel right. Oh, no, we're in trouble in northern Minnesota. I think they're on high alert. Seriously. 
And I think the devil's like, okay, uh, we got to do something, and we better do something quick. This is growing. It's like a wildfire beginning to spread. And um, he will do everything, like the Bible study at school, too. This last week of the Bible study, I, I talked about um, Christmas and what the world thinks of Christmas, and then what God says. And uh, like one student came up to me after and said, "Oh, Mr. Weeda, this is like a gigantic puzzle, and every week I get another pu- I get another piece fit." And he goes, "I get it." He goes, "I get it." There's a battle, and our culture is against Christ because Satan wants us to ignore him and forget him. And he, he goes, "Now I believe," and it's like awesome. I mean, this is somebody who. Two months ago said, I don't believe there is a God. You have to prove me to me there is a God. I was like, okay, I'll take you up on that challenge. I don't have to prove it. God will do it. And look at it. It's just incredible. You guys, we are in a major battle. So um, don't, don't go unprepared. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, just giving us some insight into the invisible realm these sons of God, these stars of heaven that you call angels, ministering spirits, these male warriors where a third rebelled against you and now two-thirds are holy and good. Wow, this this battle is raging over us right now on a Sunday morning. And I know, Father, Satan would love to capture the hearts of our husbands and wives, our parents and children, our grandparents and grandchildren, and Satan will do anything to distract and dissuade and to discourage us out of ministry. But we resist him. We trust Jesus Christ, the commander-in-chief of the heavenly armies. And I'm thankful, Father, that just as the heavenly host surrounded that baby, who was their commander um, and protected him from the evil one. So we know that we have the Holy Spirit living in us and his power and influence and insight and enlightenment is all we need for victory over the devil. So I pray we will yield to the Spirit's power and his wisdom and we will walk in the Spirit this week. And we know what would transpire from Ephesians 5, all the things that will flow out of walking in the Spirit being filled with the Spirit. Oh, you are such a good God. You have equipped us for battle. You've given us power within. You've given us armor for the outside. You've given us your word as a sword to yield, to wield against the devil and his armies. Boy, help us to be in the word and to be encouraging one another and open our eyes to the battle that's going on around us. We don't want to make much too much of it because the battle's already won by Christ. But help us to realize that Christmas There was a great battle going over the life of Jesus. We're so thankful that he did die on the cross and rose from the dead. And we now give allegiance to him. We want to follow him and live like him. Thank you, Father, for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, great. Tonight we'll be...